The following podcast is brought to you by the Fantasy Animation Research Network. There are many ways to support us in our efforts to promote the study of fantasy and animation. You can visit our website at fantasy-animation.org and, and see all kinds of blog posts and discussion forums there. You can also help promote the podcast by going on iTunes and giving us a quick rating, or you can use the old traditional word-of-mouth technique, and it's often the most effective way. Go and find someone right now and tell them about the show and get them to download it. Hell, forcibly download it onto their phone for them and make them listen to it. And hello that person, we're sorry in advance. It'll really help us grow an audience. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell anyone you think might be interested. We'd love for them to take part in the conversations. For now, though, enjoy the show. Hello everyone and welcome to the brand new fantasy animation podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. Today we will be talking about a sort of part American musical, part biopic, um, part glorious, wonderful movie, uh, The Greatest Showman. We are delighted this time to be joined by Dr. Martha Shearer, who is a teaching fellow at King's College and who has published as an expert on, on the musical and the musical genre and has recently published her book, Dancing in the Street. So thank you, Martha, for joining us. Thank you. Um, so we normally begin with kind of talking through the, the movie and thinking about why we chose um, The Greatest Showman in this case and how it relates to the sort of interplay between, between fantasy and animation. So to kick us off, and as you are the um, musical expert amongst us, we were just wondering why this film, what is it? I mean, apart from the fact it is amazing and wonderful and at least two out of the three people in this room are big fans of this film. And there are other opinions available too. So uh, that will be respected and yes. acknowledged throughout the podcast. They will be respected and <laughs> they will be respected, acknowledged, and then talk about kind of spoken over. But so, by the end of the podcast you will have accepted yeah. Hugh Jackman into, into your heart as yeah. your Lord and Saviour. Okay. Well there we well. go. So it's my it's my role to be the voice of reason on this podcast, it Absolutely. seems today. Mm. So yeah, I mean we'll start off with what is it about this film as a as a choice? Because I suppose for many, it perhaps doesn't scream, and, and I know that you, Alex, will, will kind of talk about it in relation to, to it being a, a non-fantasy film, but it certainly doesn't scream fantasy animation. So, Martha, what is it about The Greatest Showman that is, I mean, as if, as if the listeners need convincing? So, I mean, firstly, it absolutely rules. Um, <laughs> Thanks, everyone. So, we'll see, so, you, next, yeah. see yeah. you next time. So, we're done there. Um, well, it's a film that absolutely has... Um, enormous volumes of VFX involved in it in a way that's quite visible. <laughs> um, I mean, and the director was kind of a VFX artist as part of his background. Oh, so excellent. that's sort of a connection. But also, I mean, as in terms of fantasy, like this, I mean, one of the ways in which this film was received negatively by nerds and critics... Who might um, be the same thing. Maybe. Yeah, sure. Maybe they'll be like the joyless critic within the film. Absolutely. Who just doesn't understand what yeah, people Alex. want. Um, but that it's, oh, you know, it's not very accurate. And that, so that they're like chastising it for not being realist, which is mad if you watch the film, because this film is like never at any stage signalling yeah. 
that you should take it as some kind of authentic representation of P.T. Barnum. So, we, I mean, this is something that we can definitely talk about, and especially given that, I mean, my interests with the musical have been with how it represents New York, and there's a lot going on with the way that this film represents New York that is signalling to you to not take it as a kind of literal representation, but it exists in some kind of slightly other kind of space. Great, so we'll be trying to kind of juggle fantasy animation, fantasy slash animation slash the musical, mm. once again. Um, so Alex, do you want to kick us off with the sort of opening sequence? And what was the, what was the first note that you had written down um, as part of your working through of the, of the film? Okay, um, I sort of agree with what we were saying there, Martha. I think what I will just throw on that is that, from my perspective, I think, I don't think the film is asking us to accept it as realist, but I think the film could be doing a lot more to acknowledge the hilarious fantasy of what is going on here. And that this reminds me very much of the of of a movie, and I don't know why it reminds me of this, but I was thinking about this all the way through a film from nineteen from sixty two called the um the Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm, which is this very strange sort of fantasy biography of the Brothers Grimm, um, telling the story of how they wrote those um, fairy tales down. And comparing that to this movie, that movie is very much sort of um, embracing its own representation as an example of fantasy and the grim fairy tale characters sort of invade the world and the film sort of acknowledges its own functioning as a fable and as a non-realist work. I think this thing is sort of doing that on occasion, but I don't know if it's doing it sincerely throughout. I So the first note I do have on this is old style film graphics, uh, graphics and cinema of attractions, question mark. Right. Which obviously is sort of taking us back to sort of early cinema reception, early film distribution, Tom Gunning being um, the, the sort of foremost scholar on this. Um, does it do that throughout though, is the question I sort of have for the group. Does the film, I feel like the film kind of forgets it's doing these sort of self-acknowledging sort of um, displays of cinema past and just gets on with being a Hugh Jackman star vehicle about the 20 minute mark. No, so, right. No. I have a lot no. of so First, first <laughs> right. point, no. 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 Sure, okay. Yeah. So, so glad you're here, Mark. Uh, <laughs> So I think, right, it's mm-hmm. it's very aware of its status in film history. What it's not doing is that Moulin Rouge thing of continually mm-hmm. being like, hi, you're in a film, which is annoying. And so that's fine. But so I think what you're referring to, so it, it starts out with two logos for mm-hmm. one thing, one of which is a 20th Century Fox logo that's in the style of, a, of the kind of 1940s, I guess. And then there's a kind of a modern one that's also in black and white. Um, and then they have another logo, and then they have um, these kind of intertitle um, kind of credit sequence that are made to look like kind of silent intertitles. And I don't think what that's doing actually is trying to flag up its status as cinema. What it's trying to do is flag up its status as old. Okay. <laughs> so there are continual ways in which um, this film is situating itself in this sort of old timiness. And it does that through all of its kind of design, and especially actually um, all of its architecture, which doesn't make any kind of sense if it's trying to be set in the historical period in which events in this film actually happen. So I, I think it's not that it's saying, this is unreal, this is a movie, this is a fantasy, but it's, it's not kind of being like, this is an accurate historical representation. But it does have a relationship to a kind of historical period and to real places and to a kind of a real thing. It's it's kind of representationally doing something different. In terms of that 1962 film, I think what this film is closer to is... So there's like a cluster of 
um, what I have written about. Um, that is a shameless plug. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But carry on. Um, so it's nostalgia musicals uh-huh. in like the 1940s and kind of up to the early 1950s that are set in the kind of the gay 90s. Like 1940s, there's absolute obsession with the 1890s, not as like an actual historical period because there's loads of kind of um, like there was you know proper kind of financial panic, like really horrible stuff that was going on in the 1890s. But as a kind of cultural style and as a visual style. Um, and so you will watch films and I'll be like, oh, look, a bicycle, things like that. Um, and you get all these kind of musicals that are made, especially in the 1940s and especially at Fox, that are really preoccupied with this kind of 1890s-ness mm-hmm. and are kind of throwing all these markers of, of kind of gay 90s-ness at you um, as not a kind of historical representation, but as a kind of particularly kind of visual culture that, that its audience can recognise, um, that provides a space in which... Um, these films can exist uh, as kind of like slightly set apart from our everyday real world in which we're at war and we can do all these weird things. Um, But also that they're in this space that allows the studio to display all their resources, that they can do all these things with their production design, with the backlot, with matte shots, all that kind of stuff. So there is something kind of similar going on this film with all the resources that are being used here, which are much more digital. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I love the idea of 1890s-ness as, a, as an aesthetic, and, and part of, of what we sort of talked about informally, having just watched the, the film again, was its relationship to sort of Hugo and this collision between contemporary visual effects that I, I do think there are two registers, that there are visual effect shots that you are meant to notice, and then there are visual effect shots that are designed to smooth over a transition, a scene transition that marks it, that itself marks a historical period, but also moments where the digital is removing things that you want. So there's a sort of way in which the digital is being there to be noticed and to be looked at, but also to be not looked at and actually in service of sort of indexicality and and invisibility and and illusionism. So there is this kind of really interesting collision between old style, as there is in Hugo, between old style effects and the idea of entertainment and magic and, and lots of the early, so yeah, the first 20 minutes which I know that Alex, Alex absolutely adored. The, <laughs> the first 20 minutes up until Efron's appearance is very much geared towards the idea of illusion and, and spectacle and, and forms of magic and early animation and magic lanterns and, and moving images and moving pictures and all this kind of thing. So there is this nice collision between the film is very, very technological and it's a very technological space and very digital and very visual effectsy. Um, but at the same time, it's also speaking to what effects meant in the 1890s and so actually that connection through effects to something like Hugo which is as much about contemporary green screen effects as it is about trains coming into train stations and going into um, the platforms. So yeah I think it's a very, I would be interested to see your, your or hear your take on the, yeah, the role of the fantasy because obviously fantasy has a connection to the, to the musical and we think of the musical numbers as being the most fantastic and, and stuff like that and what, where, the, where the realism is in the film, where the fantasy is in the film and yeah. what register uh, being operational and what uh, the film is inviting us to think and feel, certainly it's a, it's a feel good. Well, well the question I, I sort of th- would throw back on that is, is 
spectacle is intrinsically linked to sort of aesthetics of fantasy, both sort of historically in terms of genre as well, but actually sort of in terms of a, you know a viewing mode. You um, spectacle is the fulfilment of some sort of scopic or visual yes. fantasy, or at least that's often how it's talked about, um, whether you know positively or negatively. So I guess what is the spectacle? Here. This film is obsessed with going, this is the greatest show, this is your dream coming true. What are the dream? What is the dream that it's fulfilling? What is it providing? And I can't help wonder if what it's providing is either um, superficial or, if I'm very cantankerous, problematic. Um, but we might get onto that later. <laughs> well, I mean, I, well, I suppose this kind of goes back to the, this is, as much, this is a genre piece. And so um, stuff around critical... Um, uh, writing around the musical presumably extends to questions of shallowness and um, questions of integration and that these musical numbers are not well integrated into a, into a narrative. The narrative is inconsequential, that it's really about setting up the musical numbers. So, I mean, I don't know what, what Martha's thoughts are, are on that. Like the, it seems to be that the musical is, is sort of hardwired to be thought of in, in terms of, of fantasy. Obviously, in this case, we have digital effects and computer animation, but there's something about that actually the musical is, is hardwired to be thought of in these dislocated, fantastic ways. And actually, and I know that you've written about this, that when the musical becomes more kind of gritty and realistic in 70s, 60, late 60s, 70s, then it becomes something else entirely. But presumably up to that point, and the reference that you that the film is making to Fox musicals of the forties um, into the fifties, this kind of thing is that the, the musical is a space of fantasy above all else. Um, I don't know. I mean, what I would say because you talked about integration and integrated musicals have always been in the minority, right? Quite significantly, um, and so I think cr critically and theoretically, people tend to talk about films in that way as if there is I mean still talking about this as platonic ideal of what the musical is that is this kind of fantastic release yeah um, that in a way is kind of quite ahistorical and um, ignores a lot of the kind of you know huge numbers of musicals that were actually made um, but that idea of kind of you know how it feels and the kind of that kind of fantasy that's there. There is kind of really interesting, and I think you know what I was thinking about it the first time I saw this was um, Richard Dyer's article "Entertainment Utopia," which is all about non-representational signs and how they make you feel. So you know, colours um, and movements and all this kind of stuff. Um, the actual kind of feeling it generates, um, and so this is utopia. You know, not how utopia how utopia would feel and not how it would be organised, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think this idea of it being... I think there is a sense in which we can think about what service that sort of affect is being put to. But I, I've, I've found a lot of the critiques of this film as being, you know, problematic. Um, and there are many critiques um, of the film. You know, there as are... being quite lazy, honestly. Um, because it just, I, I think there is a real problem with this film in in a very direct, literal way, in that it is constantly telling you how diverse it is and how wonderful it is, and it's put, that it is putting this on stage. But it's so us utterly enthralled to this, it's kind of like white male protagonist yeah, yeah. in like a way that's kind of ludicrous. Um, but I think the critiques of this film as like you know misrepresenting P.T. Barnum as like tricking its idiot audience who are enjoying this. 
and the fact that their enjoyment then becomes um, this huge problem. Like, look at these dummies, they're enjoying this when they mm. should see that it's bad. I have huge problems with that because I, I think it, it completely misrepresents... It's an awfully snobby way to speak about the actual audience of this film, mm. as if they're stupider than you. Um, but it also doesn't understand what the film is doing. Well, there seems to be a lot, based on what you what you said, that the film is all about questions of taste. I mean, it, yeah. it folds that into a discussion of class, but there is a distinction made at one point in the film where P.T. Barnum, so Hugh Jackman's character, when he meets Jenny Lind, played by Rebecca Ferguson, for the, for the first time, and they sort of come up with this idea of, of touring together, he says something about trusting her reputation over his taste. And there's a question around, the film is about trickery. I think that's a the mm. kind of a good word. That, And actually part of the reason uh, him and, and Jenny Lynn go on tour is that he'd he'd much rather, he's been hoodwinked. There's a question of hoodwinked that audiences have paid to, to, to see and be, be delight in the fact that they know they're watching an illusion and he would like something real. And so actually there's a lot of stuff going on in the film about uh, reputation versus taste versus performance versus trickery and, you, and in fact you said this uh, earlier on that it's a, a film about performance and I wonder whether the, the to go back to the opening sequence and the, and the playfulness of the retro 20th century Fox logos I think that one I think that's part of a trend there's a lot of movies at the moment that like to play with kind of logos and company logos even something like uh, you know the most recent Indiana Jones I think does it with the Paramount mm. logo that then turned into a molehill so there's lots of that's part of a retro nostalgia you know in this case, an 1890s-ness. But I wonder well, whether it's also a mode of performance, like it's just a performance of, that we are supposed to be instantly taking this as anachronistic and ahistorical and, and sort of playing with time. It's not, a, it's not about that historical period, but it's playing with ideas of part, the past and yeah, oldness. Sure. I, I, I find myself, what's the conversation that P.T. Barnum has with the critic? Right? I don't want to be the critic and I don't want to be P.T. Barnum, so I'm trying to carve out a third space here. In that I, get that, I get that snobbishness and I, and I don't think my critique of the movie is, that, um, is, is, is falling back on anything to do with the narrative integration. I couldn't give a shit about the narrative integration. Um, Having said that, uh, I'm now going to have to click a button on the website that says explicit uh, yeah, sorry, language. This, this is now an adult one. Yeah, 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 yeah. An adult Shocked. podcast. Yeah. Um, I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't give a tiny poo about whether, whether, the, yeah. uh, whether, whether the music integrates with that. And I don't, you know, there are some naff clunky lines in the script, but hey, you know, it's, it's fine. What I, what I want to know is, it's a play. It's a. It's a. It's playing. It's. It's about performance. Great. Yeah. What, back to what you were saying, then, Martha. What, so, what is the film doing? If 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 I'm misreading what the film's doing by falling back on some quite tired ways of critiquing the musical, what is it doing with all these things? What is it saying about performance? What is it doing with performance? What is it doing with all these playful aspects of it? Um, because I don't think I understand what it's doing, and maybe if I did, I'd like it more. So there's a bit where I think it's the critic. Um, the critic. Well, yeah, anonymous critic. Um, is it uh, Jane? Um, only because I'm reading. Is it? It's, it's going to make me sound like I knew this off the top of my head. Yeah. I'm reading it, James oh. Gordon Bennett, the um, founder, editor, and publisher of the New York Herald. Okay. I just think it's the, isn't it's it's the just, same critic just, in Ratatouille. Yeah, just a general yeah. critic. Yeah. So he's. Does it bother you that everything you're selling is fake? Yeah. And Hugh Jackman's like, no. Like he's like a scammer, and like that's part of the pleasure is watching him be a scammer. Why would a bank loan us $10,000? Because we put up collateral. 
Dear, we don't have any collateral. Sure we do. In the South China Seas. In the South China Seas. Deep in the South China Seas. <laughs> and what did we buy with this loan? Barnum's American Museum of Curiosities. What museum is it? <laughs> a place to be transported. A place where people can see things they've never seen before. And I think there is something that is kind of quite mm. appealing about watching that, right? Um, especially, you know, in the kind of context in we, which we are watching this, which is not one of affluence and prosperity, right? The idea of kind of scamming and that being part of the kind mm. of what the trickery is about. It's the, so it's, it's not this kind of like, you know, American dreamy, oh, look how he, it's like, look at all the tricks he's doing. It is interesting, actually, that the first, when he first buys the theatre, or first buys the, the kind of performance space that he will turn into this kind of freak show come circus, whatever it is, um, the first, when he, uh, when he goes there with his, his family, the first person he introduces them to is the, he kind of bigs him up as this amazing sleight of hand, and then it just turns out that he's a, a kind of a pickpocket or something. Yeah. So instantly... I think you're invited to sort of see his... He, all, all, the only difference between that scammer and Hugh Jackman is that one of them is Hugh Jackman and he's wearing kind of a red yeah. red waistcoat. Actually, they're the same. There's a, a relationship. He is, he is nothing but a scammer and a, and a trickster. So I hate to be this guy. I hate to be this guy. <laughs> no, you don't. But in 2018, political climate being what it is, is that not a problematic, to use the word again, to have a film that basically asks us to revel in... Um, a film that goes enjoy the form ignore the substance you know uh, enjoy the fakery of it as long as it achieves the Aren't result are allowed you know? to have like a shred of joy in this wretched life like I don't, I don't... yeah but jo joy, joy that, 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 that asks you to transcend substance in the embracement of aesthetic form seems unless the, politically unless it, problematic I mean, unless in this instance that the, the, the form is the substance isn't that part of the... Yeah. There isn't a distinction, or certainly yeah. the film is inviting us. I mean, it, if I think of a film like uh, The Fifth Element, the, the style of that film is the content of that film. The form is the, is the, the stuff, if you like, the, na the narrative stuff. So I'm, I'm wondering whether in this instance that the, the content of the film, given that the narrative is, is predicated on uh, spectacle, performance, uh, trickery, illusionism, dress-up, costume... Um, stuffing a pillow under your um, jumper to make you 250 pounds heavier. It's a lot I just of pillows. Feel like you're describing a Trump rally, like you know. Yes. How how is it? Make circuses great again. Like, like the form is substance. You know, say say the same catchphrase over over and over and over again, and then it becomes true. Like yeah. you know. Um, but the difference is, right, that Hugh Jackman is an actual scammer. Like, he is, like, actual kind of... He is actually working... This film is really preoccupied with class, right? Yeah. That he is actually, like, working class, kind of orphaned, yes. right? Um, and that all these people are marginalised. That's, like, the opposite of Trump, right? That his whole scam is that he is, like, you know, born into wealth, is enormously yes. wealthy, has done nothing to achieve the position that he has... Um, and is presenting himself um, as being this kind of like anti-establishment figure, which he absolutely isn't. Like it's it's not doing the same thing at all. You, I'm, I'm not I'm not so much proposing a reading of seeing P.T. Darman equals Trump. I just yeah. think that the aesthetic, that the way to access this movie and find pleasure in it is 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 a rhetoric that is quite insidious within contemporary politics. Uh, and I do hate to be this. I can find myself being bored by what I'm saying out loud. So if you are, if you are as a listener being bored by this, so am I. But like, I can't help raise it because yeah. because it's it's there, isn't it? And you know, I don't. 
So I there are a million like there are so many films that get released every single week that are purely about generating pleasure in that way. And the problem with this film, I think, is that it foregrounds that, and other films don't. And also, it's a musical, and people like to it's a culturally denigrated category. there is a reason why we're having this conversation about this film and not one of the many, many others we could have chosen. And that is troubling to me, mm. that you're taking um, the musical and like the, the kind of genres that tend to get this sort of treatment. It's like, why are people enjoying this? Um, there must be something wrong here. There must be something politically wrong here. Tend to be genres that are feminine. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the musical gets this a lot. The rom-com gets this a lot. Like, oh my God, these mm. women are so stupid. Why are they watching this film? They're going to be tricks. They're going to have all these kind of fantastic yeah. ideas about the world that are going to destroy their lives. And we aren't having this conversation about the Mission Impossible film or whatever other film that we that is there for pure entertainment. Mm. And the thing about the musical and about this musical in particular is that it puts all that on the surface. And that it may well be that it's kind of fundamentally hollow and superficial, but so a, like yeah. a, a gazillion other films. No, I, th- I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I, I, I you're right. Um, there's something gendered and there's something white male uh, about that power dynamic. And I think the one thing that makes me want to like this movie more is that it's a musical. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, think if, I think if this were Transformers Seven, I, I we wouldn't be doing it on the podcast because yeah. I wouldn't watch it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so, is, know, so um, is the film then? It, you know, it, it is as much. You know, it is a it is a musical, and it's at the risk of. Uh, every film being reflexive of something is it is it reflexive about its uh, you know it, it, it seems to me that it's a reinvigoration of a backstage musical tradition like it's the the film is about about the performance of magic and entertainment and splendor mm-hmm. and so it it uses that as a way of integrating its numbers because they kind of they're performing to the audience in the film and so they are mm. performing to us so is it a sort of update of the backstage musical or is it and is it about being an update to the backstage music. It's about the performance yeah. and the putting on yeah. of entertainment. Yeah. And, and I think you're right that it does put it, the musical is, is uh, and you will, you will know this more than me, but the, if it's about the presentation of entertainment, then this film is sort of, part of the criticisms of the film seem to be that it's also it, a criticisms of the musical in general, that it's mm. putting on this front, and it's, it's putting on its own kind of um, tuxedo or jacket and mm. going out into the world and and presenting itself and how dare it present itself in this yeah. in this way but it's like it's almost like how dare you make all this obvious like if you kind of kept all this yeah. kind of all the i think one of the things that <laughs> is going on here is that you can see the cogs working mm. you can see the machinery by which this film is trying to entertain you um like the opening number is literally oh. just a man being like this is the greatest thing in the world and yeah. you are going to enjoy it those aren't directly the lyrics, but they could be, yeah. right? And so it's making all that explicit in other kinds of films that's kind of kept under wraps a bit more. And I think that, that there is something specific about that. So actually, I, th- I think, I, yeah, I, like the obviousness of it, like yeah. obvious aesthetics, and actually the first, if we go from those those opening logos into that first musical number, The Great Show, I think you're right, it's very declamatory. It's kind of telling you how to how to think about this movie. Yeah. It, it with, uh, withholds Hugh Jackman presents him in silhouette and then and then presents him in colour and he's and then he moves around the space, the camera's doing all these sorts of kind of rotations and, and then we find out that that was a 
either a flash forward or what we're about to see is a flashback. Or it's, maybe it's a fantasy. Or maybe it's a fantasy ah! in and of itself. Well, well yeah. The, yeah, to throw the sort of like this, this, <laughs> this is the rhetoric of, of fantasy scholarship is that like you know all all particularly in terms of literary theory, like all books are fantasies except fantasies tell you that they're fantasies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and are, and are rhetorical rather than um, quietly sort of passive in their voice. Right. They are yeah. they are trying to convince you of the impossible rather than most books which try to hide that which does make me quibble about some of the bits that this I think this film is trying to obfuscate and hide because it's like if you're if you're willing to declare some things you should have sort of need to declare all of it or none of it <laughs> uh, it occurs to me it's we're, we're about the 25 half an hour mark and we haven't actually spoken about a single specific of this but film that's yet. but that's what makes the yeah. I mean of course we've been we've been uh, talking about the opening scene but a lot of the things that the film says is that what we've been talking about the opening scene yeah, but, <laughs> <laughs> right. but, but okay. it, it seems to be that the opening Opening sequence does set up a lot of the ways. So I actually, the thing about what to uh, veil, what to show, what to present, mm. kind of in front of the curtain, behind the curtain, yes. mm. are things that happen narratively throughout the film. And so I'd now like to talk about Hugh Jackman and, and the first twenty minutes and the fact that he isn't that young. Okay, so <laughs> I've got. Hugh Jack. I mean, I've got the the the, the note that we have this sort of flash. For the listeners who are perhaps not cued in, uh, we get this sort of great big opening set piece, then we get a flashback to young P.T. Barnum courting young Michelle Williams. Why is Michelle Williams in this movie? We haven't got time to debate that. Um, yeah. And, and a sort of it, uh, his childhood and life plays out uh, and their early marriage together. Um, in one musical number. Oh, yes. a, and so a, lovely, yeah. a lovely musical number, I will give you. But, but Hugh Jackman... Um, and Michelle Williams, what is their age gap? It must be going on 15, well, 20 years. I think you'll find if you watch the film that they're the same age. <laughs> okay. Very convincing. Yeah, sure. Hugh Jackman was born yeah. in 1968. Yeah. Uh, Michelle Williams was not born in 1968. <laughs> no, no. She was born in, yeah. anyone want to hazard a guess? 1980. Yeah, yeah. So that's right. There is a, a, a 12 year Well, difference. so when. Hugh Jackman, adult Hugh Jackman, because we've seen him as a child and they're like writing letters to each other. Yes. And then he shows up to her house and he walks towards the camera. And the first time I watched this in the cinema, I was like, whoa, this is like Oklahoma Hugh Jackman from the 90s. They've like proper de-aged him, mm. give him like a lustrous mane. I mean, he's, no, his, his hair is very nicely dyed oh, throughout. Yeah. Um, and so, it's, so the film is speaking to Hugh Jackman's own career as yeah. a performer yeah. in that instance. Yes. That's interesting. Um, uh, but I, later on he looks he looks a bit ropier. And I, and I guess are you suggesting that we are supposed to be adopting a self-critical attitude to that shot? No. Because I think that shot is there to try to convince people Hugh Jackman looks like that now. No, I or don't he think... he can look like, like that I, in no, some way. No, because I think it's he looks visibly younger there than he does later in the film. Don't you think? Not as visibly younger as he could. No, um, no, granted. I mean, it's um, it's simply <laughs> that the, these new sort of digital de-aging techniques and digital VFX sort of facelifts are are similar to soft lighting. Or yes. You know, they, they are they're doing the role of, of soft lighting and giving Hugh Jackman a lovely candescence just outside uh, yeah. as he walks up. There's a lot of... De and actually, I think the, the, the veiling, hidden, illusion, performance trickery is, is as much part of the film's production and, and what you mentioned earlier about its visual effects and when it shows to reveal the visual effects through can, kind of well, the cantering horses and ch -ch -ch yeah. stuff like that as it is about hiding. So in that instance, the digital is being used to erase and, and present itself as not really being there at all, that he is just... I mean, he looks... He's a beautiful man, let's... let's <laughs> sure. 
let's put that commit that to you know the podcast. He's, yeah, a, yeah, he's yeah, a beautiful fine, man. Fine. Um, and so it's a, you know he he has many star entrances in this film, yeah. uh, which which is you know it is it is what it is. But he's he's certainly presented within that first musical number to take us back to that again. <laughs> but also, which <laughs> won't ever end. Well, the, <laughs> the first the first yeah twenty minutes are about setting him up and yeah, and he works in a in a pencil sharpening company that also owns boats. No, what does come he do? on, he's like it's I don't know accounting or something. They all. They're, so they have boats in the south. So they're like yeah. some, I don't know, 19th century business factory. Sure. You know? Yeah. That's not important. No, the important it isn't. thing is that they had boats in the sea and they go bust. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then he, so he decides to use... Steal some paperwork. Steal some paperwork. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. In order to convince the bank. So he takes the shipping um, company's papers yes. to suggest that he owns this company and uses that as collateral to borrow $10,000 to then buy his very first performance space, yeah. this, this museum, this house The Museum of, of Curiosities, isn't it? Yes. Or something like that, where he sets this up. Right. Yes. Uh, and what, so that, that, that struck me because we go from the sort of opening musical, the, the, the second musical number, I guess, A Million Dreams, that is about magic, to then this sort of travelling picture show come moving images and, and one of the things that the children talk about is that the, the museum should probably have more movement in it. And it should mm. have more movement. The, the sensation lies not in stuffed creatures but in movement, in the illusion of life and the, the sort of performance of something that isn't static and fixed but the birth of entertainment is itself. And I think that's where the whole gestures to early animation and the movement of images and the play with light and shadow and when he's spinning that that sort of candle that's covered by a, I don't know, a, bar, a little basket, thing, a pencil case sure. or something with holes in it, and he spins it round. Mm. So there's lots of the pleasure in being alive and its aliveness in the and and mm. come move, alive. Yeah, come alive. To, I resisted the temptation to cite <laughs> one of the musical numbers, but there's something about aliveness in mm. the and, and movement and, and performance. Well, whilst the film denies the process of aging and death. Yes, CGI technology. Yes, and actually the the use of or the the, the films. Wouldn't that be nice, though, for everything to be continually alive and never die? No, isn't that the joy? Of no, it film? would not. Yeah. No, that would be horrible. Um. <laughs> no one ever ages, so it's fine. Yeah, but people, but, but it's not that, is it? It's it's <laughs> men don't age. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, or, or at least Hugh Jackman doesn't age. Michelle Williams doesn't age either. No, but the, 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 the fan, to use the F word, the fantasy of this is that Hugh Jackman is the same age as Michelle Williams. Okay, that's true. But also, their children don't age. Their children sure. stay yes. the same age throughout the entire film. Which is yeah, that's because, fair. like, a lot has happened. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it seems to me that the first 20 minutes, half an hour, are very economical with its, its use of time. It does, it does within the musical number what some films take a long time to do in that it traverses goodness knows how many years yeah. however old the children are that period of time we go from her being pregnant and there's lots of sort of digital stitching together of scenes and, and movements where the camera takes in one time and space goes. Yeah, so when they have that amazing kind of model shot when they go into New York yes oh I want to talk about that also so when they first arrive in New York like Charity and P.T. Barnum yes and they're on the street I'm pretty sure in the background it, what it looks like to me, and maybe I'm wrong about this, is the Flatiron building under construction. Right. Which would put this film in about 1902. Okay. The Jenny Lynn's tour was in 1850. Right. P.T. Barnum died in 1891. 
This is, so there's so much amazing no, stuff I'm, going I'm with you, Martha. I no. think there might be elements of this movie that don't make any sense. No, but I think, uh, right, I'm not saying this doesn't <laughs> make sense. What I'm, what I'm not saying is this yeah. one doesn't make sense. So there are other things. So there's a lot yeah. of, like, um, they make a big deal in that, I think in that number about the elevated railway. Yes, uh, yes. So he's standing, he's standing he's, in the middle of They have this kind of dance, yes. and it's, it's beautiful. The first elevated railway in New York opened in 1868. Um, in okay. the background, you can see the Brooklyn Bridge. If you're familiar with the oeuvre of Hugh Jackman, who isn't, yeah. and you have seen Alex, his <laughs> film um, Kate and Leopold, yes. in um. which Hugh Jackman designs the Brooklyn Bridge, right? He's right. the architect of it. Okay. Um, so that was built mainly in like the 1870s. Okay. Um, again, the Jenny Lynn's tour was in 1850. We right. have a young Queen Victoria played by an actress in her 20s, which makes sense for that sort of 1840s period. Um, so what I'm not saying is that, oh my God, this film is so dumb, they think the Flatiron Building existed in, in like 1830. Um, but that it's using all these kind of like 19th century markers mm. and shoving them all in one place in much the same way that like something like Moulin Rouge, which I think is a huge influence on this film, mm -hmm. um, just shoves together a loads of kind of fantasy ethnic sort of um, markers in this one space, which is much more kind of fantastic mm -hmm. than this film, but it's doing something sort of similar there. So that sort of fracture between these different composite elements that yeah. at the level of production have been stitched into a shot yeah. to make it look like a sort of Frankenstein version of the city, but also of apparently 50 years worth yeah, of Yeah, like of a stuff. massive timescale, but like it's, it's just giving you like the 19th century yeah. in New York, like in general, yeah. like not set in a specific period. Okay. And but like, maybe I'll just ask this question one more time, and then we'll just assume I'm always asking. Okay. It. How self-aware do you think the film wants us to be of these elements? Well, I think that's a good question because these are st this, all of that is stuff that's going on in the background. Yeah. And I'm noticing it because like that's my job, right? Sure. Um, and I don't know. To, it's not flagging it up to us. It's not being like, ha ha. You know, this is a general generic kind of nineteenth century New York, but on some level, it's expecting you to read it as that. And also, this film was a lot of it was produced in New York. It was kind of shot in New York, so mm. that's to an audience who probably would have some awareness of that, right? So I think it allows. I mean, I, I don't. I don't see the fact that it's not foregrounding that as necessarily being a problem, but. Because I don't, you know. Well, I think sense? it's a problem in terms of how you, if you choose to read it as fantasy, which is, you know, why I'm desperate to work it out. Right? Yeah. I mean, and that might not in itself be a problem, but it's a, you know, it's a. Is this film trying to get me to read it as a work of fantasy? And it keeps saying that in its rhetoric that it does. But yeah. I wonder if little touches like that, on one level, you can read that as a, exactly. We're not going for representation. We're going for some sort of phantasmagoria of New York as a. Yeah. as a place of imagination mm. but but then I'm not convinced that's what it's doing because I'm not convinced that that's what it's assuming its audience will do I think um, such readings require foreknowledge um, and maybe you get pleasure out of it because of it but but I think I mean it also like you may not even notice any of that stuff. yeah um, but I think it, it, it's but we can't kind of read a film making assumptions about like we can't do that make assumptions about audience thought. We can only read the film based on what is in it. Sure. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm trying to think of, so P.T. Barnum's line about the pleasure of being hoodwinked. Yes. The audiences are just simply enjoying the pleasure of being hoodwinked. Um, presumably that also extends to moments where they know that they're being hoodwinked as opposed to moments where they don't know yeah. that they're being hoodwinked. And so it seems that the patchiness of the film, if I, if I understand, there are moments in its style and in its rhetoric where it's, 
it's it's about being seen and this and this I think folds into the the, the film's narrative about race which is kind of great oh. and could be extended and made but it's only about being seen and, and Zac Efron's character Carlisle talks a lot about his visibility within New York society and, and he had this he had the inheritance and about being seen and not seen this is me this is and so the there's lots of I, yeah I think the film is, is is certainly playing with fields of, of vision but also this idea of inviting the audience to or not take pleasure in being duped or again or not yeah well I think there is a question there about what it's what it's putting all this in service of on a kind of deeper level so when I was kind of thinking about the kind of 1940s like nostalgia films mm. what I was really what I mean what I was interested in about those films is that they're activating a sense of New York's past which is visually so different, but not really in a sense in which there's an historical break, even though there kind of implicitly is because there's been the depression and everything that's happened. But it's, they were quite often set in places that were threatened with redevelopment or closure or that might not exist. So it's like hanging on to these little threads of the past at the same time as looking at a form of the city that is gone. Um, so there's something about that particular historical moment that led them to these kind of very exciting visions of this particular idea of the past. Um, we are now obviously at a much greater remove than those films would have been from their setting. But I think there is a question about what this kind of idea of that kind of period in terms of all this kind of trickery and kind of... Mm. Um, old style, like on a kind of social but also on a kind of aesthetic level um, that's kind of situated in this period that's slightly in that kind of mid-space between being a kind of realist historical representation and being a kind of fantasy and sometimes it makes that obvious and sometimes it doesn't mm. um, but it's, it's sort of in this kind of in-between space um, but what, what function all that has so the museum, yeah. is, the, 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 the film itself is like the kind of museum of that you're just being invited to take a tour around all these mm. disparate, out of sync, a historical bits of information markers, as you say, yeah. um, that are feeding into an imaginary of, of new New York in this 50 year window that the film is playing with. But, but to extend that analogy, the museum is, you're, taught, you're taken on a tour around the museum by P.T. Barnum and this film is actually, I think it's, if it's interested in anything, it's interested in Hugh Jackman. Yes. Um, yes. And, and, it's, and, and to me, it therefore is all in, these sort of weird subversive spaces that the film occasionally opens up and invites you into, it very quickly shuts and says, just focus on Hugh Jackman, don't worry about it. Oh much. yeah, I mean, I don't think it's, yeah. I definitely don't think it's subversive. I think it thinks it is though in places. I think right? it does, you know? yeah. But it's subversive right. and I think, we talked about this before the uh, podcast started, but the, this is, all the songs are very Eurovision. And, yeah. Um, and even like, so This Is Me, like Conchita, Conchita Verst, the bearded lady, um, did a cover of This Is Me um, in the kind of New Year's Eve thing, I think, sure. in Germany. Um, it has exactly that sort of quality of like, oh, look, we're kind of this sort of, in, like, you know, superficial inclusivity mm -hmm. that is exactly the kind of thing that would play well in Eurovision. All the surface works wanna cut me down I'm gonna send a flood, gonna drown them out I am brave, I am bruised, I am who I'm meant to be 
This is me. Look out, cause here I go. It's that time of the episode where we pause the podcast for a second, Chris. Okay, consider it paused. What would you like to talk about this week? I think in this week's pausing session, I would like to talk about iTunes and specifically how uh, listeners can subscribe, listen and subscribe to our podcast on uh, iTunes using the um, iStore. Yes, I'd like to talk about that too because uh, it's really important for us to build an audience here um, and also to sort of register some level of download uh, hits and all that kind of stuff so cards on the table we need your help guys really Uh, if you could uh, see it within you to go on the iTunes store and subscribe if you're enjoying our podcasts that would help us to understand how many people are downloading and all that kind of stuff and then while you're subscribing that will mean that you'll get all the future episodes straight automatically downloaded onto your device of whatever description you're using. Uh, while you're doing that, we'd also love it if you could uh, just leave us a quick star rating and perhaps a review. No more than a couple of sentences is fine. It would really help us because iTunes use that to help uh, boost certain podcasts. And if we can get a boost, we'll get more audience. So if you hypothetically rate this episode in the real world and want to formalise that into some kind of star system, then please do... Um, Follow the links on the Fancy Animation website uh, that will take you to the iTunes store uh, and give us a rating. I mean, it literally takes about, I think, 30 seconds, but it would be really, really helpful. In fact, I tell you what, do it now. We'll just wait. We're having a coffee right now. Oh, that biscuit's good. Finished? Yeah, okay. So it takes about that amount of time. So please uh, do that. That would really help us. And we all now shut up and let you enjoy the show. There you go, super cool. Glee is the thing it might remind me of when you mm. say Eurovision. Like they, they, Glee did this all the time, right? It was these songs about, you know, uh, everyone embracing everyone else. And whilst, you know, Leah Michelle yeah. sang a song, How It's So Hard to Be Ugly When She's Leah Michelle. Yeah, right? I know. You know um, I, mean, that, I mean, I do think that aspect of it is the thing I like least about this film. Yeah. And it's sort of a sense of kind of, it's so, you know, superiority about how good it's being at the same time that it's really is only interested in yeah. Jack. And yet, this is me is the best number in the movie. No, 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 no. I, I've just, I, I, that's the most controversial thing I've said all podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think it's, are... it's not. I don't think it's. I don't know if it's even in my top five. No, it's. I, What's I the like, top five? Well, I like the greatest. The I mean, greatest show. The greatest, sure. excellent. The greatest show. Oh, that's is, great. That's is it. a good way to. Well, it's a great way to that's start a movie. Sure. Yeah. Um, the greatest way. The greatest. Well. Even uh, even that. A yeah. million dreams. But then I Lovely. think Come Alive is a really. Come good. Alive's great. Um, the. Hugh Jackman and Zac Efron song. The other side. Uh, Fantastic. I, I've got written in my notes. As soon as Zac Efron comes into the movie, the whole thing, the, the, the joint is classed up. So um, I, so you said this, <laughs> I, yeah. and I said, do you mean classed up as in, as in the film becomes about class more I mean, than it I did? I mean both, but, uh, it, but it, it it's is smartened that. up. Um, right. If this film was a suit, the tie would be done up when Zac Efron <laughs> walks in the room. I see. Um, and shoes would be shined. And, and you know, I mean, uh, Hugh Jackman, I mean, uh, maybe I'm just a bit mixed on Hugh Jackman. I wonder Gosh. about Hugh Jackman's sort of, um, you know, effervescent quality that we're all supposed to just take in. To me, that dueling sequence with Zac Efron's the, the star in that. He's the one that, mm. that I'm mm. interested in. Well, um, I wonder too whether <coughs> like this... this um, so I wonder whether, because this film is very, and certainly was marketed before it was released as being Hugh Jackman's sort of pet project. Yeah. And there were lots of these sort of pre-release YouTube videos that talked about the making of the film and, and 
sort of them sitting around and singing the songs and chatting round table and so forth, that we are, because we know that the film is was created as his sort of thing that he's been trying to get in production for goodness knows how long, that we are also, that he is a sort of a, a, a Barnum-esque character mm. in the way that he constructed the, the film as something for him. Yeah. And at the end, when his job is done, and he, the show must go on and he passes the the baton, the cane, the hat, whatever, to, to Zac Efron, that sort of... I don't know. It, uh, the film seems to be a, a, um, a victim of its own success, or certainly a victim of its own Jackman-esque core that runs throughout the film that is inescapable, that is, that is both at the level of the narrative, but also that this is his sort of creation. Well, also, so I went to a sing-along screening at the Prince Charles Cinema... And whenever Zac Efron appeared on screen, there were just roaring cheers. Okay. Like, it was, I think, so I think there is this, I mean, that's definitely my impression of how it's marketed. But, yeah. you know, Zac Efron has a, is a, you know, those high school musical films were massive and the yeah. people who were into them are grown-ups now. Yeah. And, and, and are the target audience for this film? I don't, I don't want to sort of exclude that, that they're the only target audience, but I think you've got to have this growing audience of music, like the musical is resurging as a commercial force and it's because of this sort of yeah. examples like High School Musical doing really well, yes. like convincing companies I to mean, put money also, into things like that. I mean, also, it's like, when I <laughs> went to that screening, I was like, oh, wait, yeah. There were lots of like actual literal children there mm. um, in a way that I was like, oh yeah, of course children want to watch this film, which had not occurred to me as like a, just a, mm. kind of an adult watching this for kicks. Um, but there were lots of little children there in kind of fancy dress. It was lovely. Yeah. Um, Is it? So it's so sweet. <laughs> it was really sweet. They'd all come yeah. dressed as like Petey Barnum yeah. or Charity or Charity at the Opera. That was a good one. But interestingly, the, the characters that aren't the caricatures of, you know, the, the oh, quote yeah. freaks. No, no, so yeah. this thing about, I mean, yeah, all the way through and, and we, we laughed a little bit at, at some of the dialogue because... The musical numbers are terrific, but some of the dialogue is very, very clunky, and, and the way that they are trying to frame P.T. Barnum as this, you know, people are laughing anyway, so you might as well make some money. And just these really yeah. awkward tonal shifts that are, I don't know, that seem, I don't, yeah, this film, this thing about an illusory, you mentioned it before, this inclusivity, this superficial inclusivity, that's probably the, a great tagline for the movie, The Greatest Showman, superficial inclusivity. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've dragged you down with me now. Like, you know, or or can we or can we look past that? I think if the film is declaring its inclusivity to be superficial, then you have to. I don't. In I some don't way, think it is. No, I don't think it is. But no. actually, that is not a problem for me. I still enjoy this film thoroughly. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I we haven't really we haven't really talked much about anything other than the first half an hour. But the I think the 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 role of uh, animation in all of its forms, it's it's. Uh, creation of a fantasy New York space or an imaginary New York space. It's tweaking of Hugh Jackman's. Could, could we say a bit more? Because I think we've talked a lot about yeah. whether it's interesting to talk about in terms of fantasy. Yeah. It hadn't. I mean, I knew there was a lot of CGI in yes. this, but it hadn't occurred to me quite how much CGI until we had a conversation about it. So just like fill the listeners in on like on on how ubiquitous the use of CGI is in this movie. So. There is an interesting split, as I said, between the, two, the kind of pre-release material. And on the one hand, you have the making of where the actors and actresses are sitting around a table and they are doing a read-through and they're performing live and they're getting very emotional. And, and the film is suddenly, before it was even released, it's a, 
this has been brewing for some time and look at all the work and the effort and, and here we are. The flip side of that is another set of videos about the visual effects in the movie and these are quite common on, on the, the internet and so forth. This, these sorts of behind the scenes where they do a split screen or they do a wipe to show you what was in the f uh, final shot and then they gradually take it all away and you just see that it's somebody standing in front of the green screen. We would tend to expect this of certain kinds of, of genres. I was, I admit, I was slightly surprised about the amount of, of CG in it, and there is a, a really interesting video about the, the VFX in the film where it creates a lot of a lot of the outside spaces. Um, so when Hugh Jackman is walking up to the house that kind of doesn't exist, um, the stuff where he reconciles with Michelle Williams at the end of the film, uh, and we talked about this, her, head, her scarf is is flapping in the wind beautifully, but clearly didn't flap well enough on the day, and so is is CG. Um, and there is this split register, as I said, between the, the effects that we are designed to notice, whether they're in service of narrative. So the use of slow motion, I think, is, is really interesting when um, Carlisle, so Zac Efron's character, first meets Anne Zendaya, and they have that sort of moment, and he says, who is that? And she's on a trapeze, and there's a slow motion. And there's, I think, is it one of the musical, is it This Is Me, where there's a, a jump, when they're, or maybe it's Come Alive, I can't remember, yeah. where, they're in, where in, they're kind of suspended in midair and then come back down again. These are moments that are meant to be noticed. Then there are other moments where, when you actually peel back and look at these behind-the-scenes things, you realise that a lot of the film is just is very, very artificial. It's again, it's the seduction of, of reality, or it's the, the the trickery of it that's playing out technologically as much as it is through the circus. Yeah, yeah the so film is a circus. You know, the that film feeds is... into what we're talking about, because oh. right? ultimately, I think the, I don't mind that the I don't mind the idea that the film is going, hey, look. None of this is actually happening. This, these songs didn't happen. The songs are yeah. quite obviously contemporary songs. We are in a hyper, hyper real. Is that even the word? Let's just say it because people say it all the time yeah. when they mean fantasy yeah. uh, space that, that yeah. we live in. But then, but then there are other bits that I'm like, mm, I think you are asking me to believe that this Barnum figure was in some way compassionate towards um, his performers, and I don't well, believe that for a second. No, um, so I think the thing is, it is asking you to expect that this Barnum figure, I don't think it is actually expecting you to read this Barnum figure as the historical P.T. Barnum. And I don't think, and I don't think this is a case of like a film tricking its audience. I think there is so much that's going on in this film that is very obviously artificial, that there is no one watching this who is taking this as a historical document. Like there is whether it, whether in specific moments it is signalling its own artificiality or not. And there are others where it's do, somewhere it's doing it, somewhere it's aren't. Yes, but I think the overall effect of the film is so much like this is fake. Enjoy it. That there is that the individual things in it are not going to be taken as that seriously. Yeah, I just wish it, I wish it was consistent with that because I think I, the, my favourite moments are completely like that. Mm. My least favourite, like for example, the the Jenny Lynn character is just bonkers, right? Because the whole narrative about that is that this is this is the real stuff, right? I'm going to peddle the real thing in action, and her musical number is the least showy of them all, mm. and yet it's involving. Um, it's, it's, I, I'm right thinking that Rebecca Ferguson's the only actress that's got a voice double. She is, but like the voice double's good. Like that's the point of that's it. Right, is that you're supposed voice to double. kind of. Um, but I don't. I don't think. I don't. I don't really care about that. Like the point is that the voice is good, right? That's the thing that's impressive. Mm. I'm just trying to think of a, a, a hilarious parallel between rewriting the stars and the way that it 
rewrites the stars of the movie in the oh sense of oh it, god it, it, oh it, Chris, has a, Chris has an article oh. title this yeah. is going to in a journal rewrite yeah. the stars re, colon no, right, yeah. <laughs> no it would be re in brackets host re host oh, human celebrity yeah. and um, <laughs> um, but no, so this reminds me of, and we, we talked about this uh, beforehand this this uh, so there's an excellent book on special effects by William Brown called Super Cinema which is about uh, cinema philosophy of special effects and about films that declare their effects and what it, what is digital cinema and he makes the distinction between two kinds of superhero, between Batman and, and Superman, and that Superman is fundamentally a superhero. He has powers, and he pretends to be human, yeah. whereas Batman is the other way around. He is a, a mere mortal and, 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 and pretends to be this kind of superhero or, or plays at being a superhero. And so I'm wondering whether, the, whether these sorts of behind-the-scenes rhetoric and this, the whole thing that we've talked about, about performance and um, what things are really like, it reminded me, and certainly its use of, of digital effects, like what the what the film is is really like. What it's really like is a set of green screens inside somewhere. But what it's presenting to us is this incredible New York of circa well, eighteen fifties to eighteen ninety eight, nineteen oh one, whatever. Um, and so there is something about its its secret identity. Is it really a film about this or is it really this? And and this seems to play out in ev- everywhere I look at the movie. Is she really singing or is it? Is it a double? Is it performance on stage? Is it are they really kissing on stage, or is it just a stage mm. moment that she kind of concocted? And it, there's lots of this, this go, this kind of going on. Should I really hold to, um, Should Zac Efron really hold Sanders? Oh no, when he's seen, he'll take mm. it away. There's lots about being seen, being not seen, and it just it relates to the special effects, I think. But it and where we're supposed to see them, or we're invited to see them. But it seems to be in every part of the movie, being able to control your appearance. Mm. That film is really about the control of appearance, yeah. for me anyway. I buy that. Yeah, okay, yes. I, th- I think I think we better wrap it up because we're in danger of um, this being uh, not the greatest show if we carry on much longer. <laughs> go, on, go on, Martha. Like, Martha, thank you for appearing on the podcast. Sum up for us where you are with this movie. Why, why is it... Um, why is it continuing to fascinate you, and 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 how does it speak to the legacy of musicals, or indeed the relationship between the musical in this new age of the CGI, or this relationship between musical and fantasy? So it continues to fascinate me, as I've said, because it absolutely bangs. But secondly, <laughs> I think that what Chris is saying is absolutely right in that um, this is a film which, to whatever extent, is about being a musical. It is also about being a kind of a VFX film. Yeah. Um, and it's about the use of VFX. And I think what is interesting for me is that um, it's it's sort of this return to the studio era in that mm. it's um, how can we show you all the things that we can do? And that is what this film is. It's about its own kind of methods of production. So is it, I mean, um, in terms of the resurgence, you mentioned it earlier, like the resurgence of the, the musical, is this, mm. is this part of this? So we've had La La, I mean, you'll miss, but La La Land and, and The Greatest Showman, and I've now blanked on all other contemporary well, and That's and, all of them, And yeah. Mamma Mia 2. Mamma Mia 2, of Mamma Mia, here we go again. Which, which, yeah. As we're speaking, title. yeah, which is the best title of anything <laughs> ever, but as we're speaking, that is out in cinemas. So yeah, will, but, but you'll be listening to this about four months four months in advance of this so should we all have a prediction as to how it's done um it will have done very well yeah yeah but again it's amazing it's the number one british movie (laughs) of all time (laughs) who would have thought Um, but that's another film that also looks like it was filmed indoors 
Like there are bits of it where you're like, oh, this is this is indoors. Anyway, I just have a preoccupation. We can't go on about Mamma Mia too. Okay? Um, that that for, for the next podcast. But what, so what I will say about the revival of the musical mm-hmm. is that for almost twenty years, whenever any musical comes out and does well, people are like, oh, the musical, it's back. To the extent that Hugh Jackman literally did this at the Oscars. If you have not blanked this out because it was horrible, where he had a massive uh, musical number with Beyonce, um, and um, the you we, know the kids, the kids from High School Musical and um, uh, from Mamma Mia, and they all did a musical number. It was like a montage of lots of. It was like directed by Baz Luhrmann. It's horrible. It's like the worst thing you've ever seen in your life. Um, so that was quite a long time ago. At this point, that was after kind of the first Mamma Mia came out and was like a big hit. Um, and he started by saying the musical is back. And so you've got this continual rhetoric of revival around the musical that has been going on for literally almost 20 years at this point. Yeah. Um, and The Greatest Showman builds that into the film itself. Mm-hmm. It's about, oh yeah, let's bring back entertainment. So it's especially at the, film after, in, at the end of the film after the fire, when it's like, oh, how can we kind of revive yeah. the mm-hmm. kind of show that we had going? Um, and it's explicitly about that in a way that few of these other kind of musicals are. You know, you don't see that in the other lesser musicals in which a Hugh Jackman character steals bread. Don't speak of. Sure. Well, on that note, um, uh, Martha, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. If uh, listeners wanted to find examples of your work out in the, the universe, where might they look? What uh, um, would you like to promote or plug? So my book, New York City and the Hollywood Musical Dancing in the Streets, is available and extremely expensive but may well be in libraries well as, as people might be listening to this in four months time it could have come out you know and be you know dirt cheap um don't hold your breath no is what i'll say yeah so. sure sure and where sure. and where can they find you on twitter at martha p shearer there you go okay expect okay. tweets hashtag yes. uh what? Hashtag, What's the hashtag of the week? Uh, hashtag Hugh Jackman steals bread. Hashtag, hashtag Hugh Jackman steals bread. Check that in four months. See if anyone yeah, uh, is sure. Uh, until until then, uh, thanks for coming on us, Chris. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you, Alex. I'll see you for the next treat instalment, wherever we've got planned. Um, and uh, take care, listeners. Bye. Bye.